Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When someone has a legal case to bring against the Metro Nashville Police Department, the maximum payout they can receive is $300,000. That cap comes from the city. Recently, litigation against MNPD has picked up both from civilians and from former officers of the department. So what's the history with these payouts? Today, we'll learn more about them. And to begin, we'll learn more about a former Metro Nashville police officer who was awarded hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages for being sexually harassed by her fellow officers. Now, heads up for listeners, today's show deals with some tough topics. There's likely to be discussion of sexual assault, violence, and suicide outs. Pardon me, potential suicide. So we want you to use your best discretion when listening in the future. So many of the officers accused of sexual harassment still work at the department. WPLN's Paige Flager reports the lawsuit provides a glimpse into the culture inside MNPD. Paige, thanks for being with us. Really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit more about Satali Gomez and why she wanted to become a police officer? Yeah, so Sitlali Gomez grew up in Nashville. She's a Nashville native, and she really wanted to see more officers in her community that looked like her. You know, a woman, uh, Latina, speaking Spanish, and she really set out to kind of, she wanted to repair the relationship and some of the distrust between police and her community. Um, but it was almost immediately upon joining the department that she realized that that was going to be really difficult to do. What was her time like at MNPD? So she was 24 when she started at the police academy. Pretty brutal uh, to to make it through all the things, the trials and tribulations that you have to go through in order to become an officer. And she kind of realized pretty quickly that MMPD is a boys club and the numbers bear that out. She was one of just a handful of female officers in her graduating class. And MMPD's current roster shows that only about 12% of sworn officers, so the people that deal with the community, are women. Male officers um, started she noticed making lewd comments about her looks, about her body. They would text her inappropriately. They would ask her out. Um, One officer asked her to go to a hotel with him. One officer asked her to go on a trip with him. Um, Some officers would send her naked photos, text Mm. her naked photos of themselves, and request photos from her in return. So all of these behaviors over the course of her, what ended up being about six years with the department, um, just kind of an onslaught of of harassment, not only from uh, fellow officers at her level, but also people in supervisory positions. And also at one point, the officer that she was training. So from below her, above her, it was kind of coming from all directions. So for six years, she endured all of this. Did she ever report it inside the department? Yeah, so this is a tricky topic. I think from what I've heard and from my reporting, it's very clear that deciding whether or not to report uh, these interactions becomes really difficult. Um, Sitlali has said that she felt kind of discouraged to to make any reports about the sexual harassment, and she worried about the impact that it might have on her day-to-day relationship and her ability to do her job. 
if you want people to come to your calls and answer your calls or back you up, then you get to say nothing. So if you want to advance, you don't want to be the person that I told you, you don't want to be that person. Um, and I think that that's just, that's not right. That's not okay. And there was this underpinning um, to Sit Lolly's experience about just being fearful of retaliation. So in one case, she did come forward um, and say that, that a male officer was making these inappropriate comments towards her and it was making her feel uncomfortable. That male officer was punished for one day for making inappropriate comments to Gomez. But Gomez was given four days of punishment hmm. for running an errand while on duty, which is kind of something that becomes commonplace among police officers, but it's one of those things where like you can get dinged for it if they decide that they want to go looking for a reason to punish you. And that, that was what Sitlali, that's what her experience she says was like. So how does Sitlali's experience, how does this fit into the bigger picture of this issue? Yeah. So if we rewind a little bit back to 2020, um, there was kind of this big uh, upheaval here in Nashville where more than 70 police officers came forward with allegations of experiencing sexual harassment and even assault, sexual assault inside MMPD. Um, it peeled back the curtain on this culture that for the most part, had gone unchecked and unnoticed from the outside. And one that officers really worried would spill over into the community. You know, there's this attitude, if that's how they're going to treat their fellow sworn officers, how are they going to treat a civilian on the streets? Um, you'll hear more about this kind of massive moment back in 2020 from Greta McLean later in the hour with Silent No Longer, but her organization helped kind of meet with city leaders to try and come up with some policy recommendations about how to handle sexual harassment claims inside the department. They wanted to see those investigations outsourced in hopes that it would make them, one, faster, and two, more trustworthy. Well, what has MNPD's response been like to all of this? <clears throat> yeah, so MNPD declined to comment for this story. Um, they've said to me that they really encourage their employees to come forward if they have uh, complaints of sexual harassment. Um, during the trial, representatives testified um, that things like asking people out flirting, um, you know, that sort of thing is normal and not against policy in the department. Um, and the officers that were named in Gomez's complaint didn't testify. So there were um, more than a dozen officers that were named in this complaint, um, several of which still work with the department. Um, and, you know, it's, it's actually, it's worth noting that it's quite rare for these cases to go to trial at all. It's more common that we hear about a settlement instead. Um, but in this case, they went to jury trial and the jury decided unanimously in Gomez's favor. They awarded her actually $450,000 in damages, but the statute only allows $300,000 to be paid out. I have a question for you, but real quick. So they issued police, Metro Police issued a statement saying that flirting, asking other officers and colleagues out is okay, but you know, sending people nude photos is an extreme form of flirting. Did they come up with a policy on what type of flirting is appropriate? 
Yeah. So that was actually something that was discussed during the trial, not necessarily the statement that they sent me. But I mean, I think that that's the tricky part. And that was definitely Metro's argument during this trial was like, there's a gray area here where, uh, you know, if and even I listened to some of the interviews that were done between the Office of Professional Accountability and some of the officers involved in this case, uh, where there is this issue of like, well, like she was she flirting back with you or like was it well received? And I th- I think the the issue with the way that things have been operating from what it sounds like inside Metro Police is just the fact that uh, whether or not that those behaviors make someone uncomfortable and if there is a safe place and uh, uh, the ability to like bring that forward and say, I feel uncomfortable and know that that's going to be heard and well received. And I think that that is really the the bigger issue that that Sit Lolly's case touches on. Okay, so judgment was rendered in her favor. What's next for Sit Lolly Gomez? Yeah, so she's moved on to a new career. Um, she's moved into a new house. She doesn't live in the same home that she lived in when she was an officer. It's just too full of painful memories for her. Um, and it's been a really hard transition uh, for Sitlali, but uh, she says that her daughter has really been a guiding light. And then I questioned myself, like, did you do the right thing? Did you, should you just have kept your head, you know, down and then kept going? Um, but then I think about my daughter and I'm like, would I want her to be that way? Would I want her to just be quiet and let these things happen to her and then not find her voice to talk about these things? No, but I also wouldn't want her to go through this because I've definitely been through a lot. Um, but I think she'd be proud. I think she'd be happy when she's grows up and knows and learns about it. I hope that she's proud of me. Paige Flager is WPLN's criminal justice reporter. You can find the link to her story about Sitlali Gomez in this show's episode post at thisisnashville.org. Paige, thanks for kicking us off, and thank you for this reporting. Really appreciate it. Of course. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet someone who is suing the police after being arrested and never charged with a crime. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Imagine you're arrested, you're charged with one offense, then it's dropped. Then you're charged with another and another. Your life is turned upside down. And you feel that what happened to you was wrong. But this is the police. Where do you go for help? What do you do? Naya Abbey had to ask herself these very questions. In August of 2019, she was pulled over in North Nashville while driving on her way home. She couldn't understand what she had done wrong. And since that August night, she has been trying to find resolution. What is Naya up to now? Well, she joins me now to discuss. Naya, thank you for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. (laughs) Really appreciate you doing it. So, you know, first, just let me ask you, how are you doing today? 
I'm I'm doing well. Um, I'm pushing forward and moving through. Well, good. That's good to hear. And, you know, you know, can you take us back to that night four years ago when you were arrested? Um, yes. Um, well, me and my son, my son at the time, he was eight. He will be 13 in November. Um, we were actually moving boxes from our home. Um, two of my friends was so graciously, they graciously let me use, um, one of my friends let me use their car. The other one let me use their um their share for storage because at the time I didn't really have that much money to, you know, buy things since I was moving abruptly. Um, me and my son um, were living in the, in that area where I was arrested. I was living off of Ed Temple Boulevard and Buchanan. And um, my friend who was letting me use their storage lived off of Hermosa and 21st Avenue North. Um, this was our third time moving boxes to her shed and when we pulled up uh, for the third time, um, we noticed a car pulling up behind us. Um, and then they turned on, they turned on their hair lights, their brights. Um, I, I had my son just stay in the car, me and him stayed in the car because I didn't know what was going on. It was kind of weird that, you know, this car pulls up and then turns their brights on. So um, I waited to see if maybe someone would come get out the car or someone will come from one of the houses and get into the vehicle, but that never transpired. So I ended up just pulling off and I decided to either go back home or, you know, go around the block just to wait, you know, to see if they'll leave. Um, as we pulled off, um, they followed us down the block to the stop sign. Um, when we got to the stop sign, um, I made a right. They made a right. They didn't stop the stop sign. They just continued through. Um, we get to the second stop sign um, before the uh, intersection of Jefferson Street and 21st. Um, they follow us through that stop sign. The last stop sign we get to is about 400 feet from the, from the intersection of Jefferson Street. Um, we get to the last stop sign. They turn on their blue lights. Now these officers were in a blue unmarked car. So I didn't know, you know, who it could be. <laughs> um, anyone could put blue lights on their car, you know. So um, just for me and my son's safety, I decided to go to the intersection. Once at the intersection, um, I rolled down my windows. I parked and rolled down my windows. My son, he fidgets a lot because he's on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so I, I told him to be still. He knows the routine. So I told him to be still. Um, when I turned back around, there were guns pointed at me and my son. Um, they yelled obscenities and told me to get out the car. Um, I got out the vehicle with my hands up in the air and I was asking the officer, um, officers, I don't know if I can name them, but officer Stucky, um, I asked him, you know, why they were pulling me over. And he said, he asked me, did I see him? And I was very confused because I'm like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did see you. That's why I'm parked in the middle of the street, you know. Um, the His partner comes from around the passenger side and placed me in handcuffs, and they walked me to the unmarked vehicle. Um, while there, while he's he has me at the vehicle, um, Officer Stucky, who started the, who initiated the um, arrest, started searching my vehicle. Um, then I noticed him going to the back seat where my son was. And I yelled to him and said, don't touch my son. 
He walked away from the vehicle and got in my face and said, you're going to jail and I'm calling CPS to put your son in custody. And that's when I kind of, um, I started crying because my son is nonverbal, you know, and I didn't, I didn't want that to happen. So I, um, I begged him to let me call his father. Um, I couldn't reach his father. So I contacted the owner of the vehicle and my brother to come pick up the vehicle and my son. Um, once we, once they came and picked up the vehicle, um, the officers took me down to booking. And as we were driving, they told me that they found um, a small amount of marijuana on in the floor. Um, I knew that they were just trying to get me to say something to incriminate myself um, because they read me my Miranda rights and things like that. And I know they'll have to do that in order to arrest you. Um, I denied it, you know, and they took me down to booking. Once at booking, I found out that I was facing um, charges of evading arrest and reckless endangerment and that my bond was $10,000. So what what after four hours? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. I'm just saying, what what happened after you were released from police custody? How did that Um, impact your life? Well, it didn't. It the it didn't start until um, after the preliminary hearing um, on December fourth of two thousand nineteen, um, where they my my case was in general sessions. They moved it to criminal court. Um, well, to the grand jury to decide if it should go to criminal court. Um, I at that time, um, since there were two open felonies under my name. It was hard for me to get jobs and things like that. I was actually working for um, Cigna Healthcare at the time um, as a contracted employee, and they were trying to um, move me over to full-time, but they had to start the employment process over the background and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So when they were in the background, they saw that I had two open felonies and they couldn't continue um, my employment. Um, the apartment that me and my son was going to move into, they ended up denying me um, because of the open felonies. And I ended up having to send my son to live with his father. And he's to, he, he lives there to this day. So, um, so you lost your job. You lost your potential housing from all this. I wonder, were you able to get and acquire the services of an attorney while you were dealing with all this? Um, I had, um, at the beginning, I had a uh, public defender. Then I ended up um, getting a, um, well, my, with the help of my brother, I ended up um, having a lawyer, uh, attorney represent me. Um, I paid um, Jeffrey Goldtrap to represent me. Um, and <laughs> for lack of better words, I feel, believe that I was, I was completely failed by him as well. Um, he, um, at my last hearing on August 24th of 2022, he didn't even show up to the hearing. And it was two weeks before my trial. What, what happened next? Well, um, I ended up basically, um, I was homeless for the last, these last few years. I'm still, um, my housing is still unstable. Um, I have a three-year work gap going on four year work gap on my resume. Um, um, my son, he's still separated from me. Um, 14 days after the preliminary hearing, 
because of the stress and things like that and me being having to separate from my son and I'm I didn't know it at the time but I was with child and I ended up having um I ended up losing my child Mm. I ended up having a miscarriage because of the stress um I'm sorry I um thank you so much um a month before the hearing um of August 24th 2022 I ended up um, obtaining the 911 recordings, basically um, debunking everything that the officer said in his testimony on December 4th of 2019. Um, when we got to, when I got to my hearing on August 24th, 2022, the DA uh, wanted to retire my case at first. And um, they said that I had to follow a stipulation of the 1129, basically saying that um, I couldn't get into trouble anymore for 11 months and 29 days. And if I, you know, secede, that they will um, basically let me um, um, get all of those um, felonies expunged off of my record and things like that. Um, I left the courtroom without signing anything they didn't really you know tell me you know there's an appeal process or anything like that and I ended up having to find that out on my own I um, found out that I can appeal the judges um, I had 14 days to appeal the judges decision so I wrote um, my judge Jennifer Jennifer L Smith um, and I told her you know this is this has been lingering over my head for years and I haven't been in trouble before or you know after you know, after this situation. So she ended up dismissing the case entirely mm-hmm. on um, September 7th of so, that year. So you're currently, from what I understand, you're currently suing MNPD, the city and yes. the state. Have you been able yes. to get representation? No, I have called about 36 lawyers. I have a list of them in my notebook. Um I've called about 36 firms and I've had so many of them tell me, oh, the stipulation, the, the, uh, excuse me, the statutes of limitation is off of your, your case um, and things like that. So I had to basically um, buckle down and learn different torts and uh, different laws and stuff myself. So that way I can, you know, represent myself because I feel like, you know, I need to fight. I don't need to take this laying down with or without a lawyer, you know, Mm. and I just had to move forward, even if, you know, worst case scenario, but I'm trusting that, you know, things are going to work out for, for my good. Do, Do you, have you heard of anyone else? Do you know of anyone else who's experienced this before? Um, well, um, the person who was arrested by the same officer the same year, Mr. Ralph Ward, um, and I believe he already has won his settlement. Um, me and him were arrested the same year by the same officer. He was actually arrested four months after me in practically the same area. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake We're talking this hour about the settlements involving the Metro Nashville Police Department. You can send us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, my next guest is an attorney who has represented people in their case against MNPD. Kyle Mothershead, thank you very much for being here, and welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you. Now, Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you being here. I, w- I want to get two questions in. You know, I want to... Uh, 
I want to in a second. I want to hear about your response to what you just heard from Manaya. But she just men- mentioned Ralph War- Ralph Ward, who you represented. Um, he was arrested 2019, same year, particularly almost the same area as Naya. Can you give us a little breakdown of what happened in his case? Well, Ralph's case, um, you know, it's a, it's a different it's a different case. Uh, what happened there? He was um, Ralph. Ralph was a T-Mobile uh, executive sales manager who was um, out working on their 5G network, and then he was he was moonlighting. For, as an Amazon delivery driver um, because his mom's birthday was coming up and he was trying to put together a party for her. So um, so he he came back into town and then he picked up his Amazon deliveries and ran them up to Hendersonville and um, and then and then he was headed back home, which is Nolansville. So so parallel to all this, um, the Flex team which I, I don't think MNPD has these flex teams anymore. They've kind of fallen out of favor, but, um, you know, it's like a, what's called a proactive policing unit, you know, kind of go after um, suspected drug offenders and um, serve warrants on um, allegedly dangerous individuals and stuff. So anyway, so, so the, the flex team that Stucky was a part of, they were uh, surveilling this motel in, um, in North Nashville. Stucky was in the North, uh, precinct. And so they were trying to find this uh, suspected murderer, a, a man who was indicted for a homicide. They were trying to serve the warrant on him. Mm. And they're basically tracking this motel to try to see if they can um, snag him. Um, and that they thought he would be coming and going from there. So, so anyway, so, so they would, they would kind of follow cars and this team would kind of follow cars coming out of the hotel. And, um, uh, you know, basically look for some kind of a justification to pull them over, you know, like speeding or, you know, not using a turn signal, whatever, you know, some little pretext, um, which is illegal, you know, the, according to the federal courts, you can use a pretext as long as there was some kind of a traffic violation. So, um, so anyway, so one of the, one of the cars that he followed, um, you know, which they talked about as, it's a little vague on their radio chatter, but sounds like they're talking about it as a black Nissan, at least one of the team members referred to it as a black Nissan. It goes out onto I-65 and it ends up on Briley Parkway. Okay. And so then now, you know, sort of parallel stories here. So Ralph Ward coming back down from Andersonville is also ends up on Briley Parkway. He was, he was never on I-65 North, um, but he ends up on Briley Parkway a little ways ahead of, of where the flex team is, is trying to track this car that they're following out of the motel. So, so they, they, they lose the car. Like they try to pull it over. It wasn't actually Stucky to try to pull it over. Um, it was uh, other teammates, uh, and it actually isn't Stucky that that ends up kind of being primarily responsible for what happens next. Um, but he was just there in the arrest um, and uh, had his gun on Mr. Ward and everything. But but so what happens is uh, one of the teammates tries to pull this this car over, and it just takes off, and it's like moving like very fast. And uh, and what they you know, the, the other thing, other than that, maybe it was a black Nissan, it had high intensity LEDs. And that was kind of it. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's it was the a, description so, they so had of it. It was a very specific description for this car. Was Mr. What, what kind of car was Mr. Ward driving? Well, he was driving a red Lexus, which also had high intensity LEDs. But I, you know, I don't know if that is necessarily that specific, you know, black Nissan with high intensity LEDs. They didn't have the plate, you know, even though they were up, mm-hmm. up behind the car, they were, you know, 
tailing and they didn't get the plate before trying to pull it over. But anyway, so so they lose it and, um, you know, and it takes off. And then Reynolds was one of the other team members, uh, you know, by policy, they they don't try to keep up with it. Right. Like it's just gone. And so but then he's cooking along and then he he just decides because he sees Ralph's car with the high intensity LEDs like, oh, that that must be the car we just lost. Even though, you know, Mr. Ward is just like tooling along, along at, you know, 55 miles an hour or whatever on Briley, like doing nothing. Um, and so they just and then they just followed him in like a stealth mode, like no blue lights or anything all the way through town, all the way through Davidson County into Williamson County. He lived in Nolensville and they just like followed him, tailed him. They got the helicopter out and and never tried to pull him over during any of that. And this is nobody's disputing. this. like this is just what happened. Like they just, you know, stealth tailed him all the way down there. And then um, he stopped at a liquor store just to like get a nightcap, you know, for the when he gets home after the, the long day of work. And that and then they just like came at him in this liquor store and uh, drew down on him and, and forced him down and took him into custody. And he and he tried to explain, you know, he's like, what is going on here? Right. And there's a video of this. It's been, you know, played. Um, and, he, and he tried to explain to them, you know, like you have the wrong person. I was never on I-65 North. Like, you're this is the wrong person. And then Ralph actually had GPS um, evidence because he was, you know, because he was the delivery driver, so he would like mm-hmm. track his routes. Mm-hmm. And so he actually, you know, he tried to show them like, hey, look at look at my phone, look at my GPS unit in my car. Like, I you I can prove to you right here that you have the wrong person. Did, did they and pay they attention re- to that? No, they just refused to look at it. Like just mm-hmm. refused to look at it. And so um they took him into custody and they charged him with felony evading arrest um and then you know long story short so he had joey kimbrough representing him criminal defense wise the officers just didn't end up even showing up to court they got dismissed they prosecute okay so you you know you heard about naya's case and that she's planning to represent herself to that what's your reaction to that well it's 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 re- it would be very hard it, you know it's most lawyers don't really understand how to do this kind of work and i i mean i say that with you know respect and humility but like it took me years to kind of get and i'm you know i'm still learning things as i go well, well certainly in ralph ward's case i was learning things as i went you know i mean it's just like there's so many ways to lose like there's so many complicated little nooks and crannies and just the immunity is so difficult it's such a difficult hurdle you know the um you know like the supreme court has basically laid down like enormous barriers of protection for the police on these kind of lawsuits um you know which is basically qualified immunity meaning that police are in fact allowed to violate your constitutional rights as long as it's just not like a super obvious egregious violation like if it's something that you know, two officers could maybe disagree about like, is this over the line or is this not? Then like they can violate your rights and have no accountability. And then the other part that's that's tough is that your rights in this context are not very robust in the sense that all all they need to arrest you or pull you over or arrest you is um, probable cause or to file criminal charges against you. All they need is probable cause. Probable cause is uh, considered by the Supreme Court to be they call it a low bar, um, and it's um, less 
less evidence than a preponderance of the evidence. Preponderance of the evidence in legal terms, that means like more likely than not. In other words, if you had scales and 51%, more likely than not, that's preponderance, right? And that's like if you're doing a civil case, like a, mm. like a car accident, like personal injury kind of case, got proof in by preponderance of the evidence. Um, the police don't need that much. In other words, someone could probably be innocent, but there's just like some evidence that they might be guilty. That's, that's probable cause. And so mm. that's all the police need to arrest you and charge you with a crime. And we see the that's effect, all they need. And we can see the effects of that hearing about Mr. Ward's case and also getting firsthand experience of how it impacts and can disrupt someone's life, as we just heard earlier from Naya. Um, I only have a couple more minutes left, but Naya, I want to ask you, you know, what do you want for your future? Um, well, I want to be reunited back with my son. I haven't seen him physically since December 10th, 2021, um, because he ended up moving to Alabama with his father. Um, they were living in Nashville, but um, it's just been really difficult for me to be financially stable um, or get that stability that I had once again, you know. So I, I want to be able to take care of my child and and do what's best for him and be a role model for him. And that's that's another reason why I'm doing this. And also maybe, you know, I can help other people. That is Naya Abbey. She's currently suing the Metro Nashville Police Department. She was joined by Nashville attorney Kyle Mothershead. I want to thank you both for being with us today. Really appreciate you both being on. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with a former Metro police officer who runs a nonprofit to help sexual assault survivors and a member of the Community Oversight Board. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When someone has their rights violated by the police, they do have the option for litigation. Now, before the break, we heard how difficult that can be, especially if you don't have an attorney who's familiar with the process of suing the police department or the city. But our city does have a community oversight board meant to hold police accountable. And there are people and organizations out there who want to help. I'd like to introduce my next guests. Greta McLean is the founder of Silent No Longer and a non it's a nonprofit organization that assists survivors of sexual assault and is a former detective at MNPD. And Jill Fitchard is a member of the community site board and a former guest of the show. I want to thank you both for being here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for having me. Greta, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about Silent No Longer. What exactly does the organization do to help people? Our primary focus, in addition to advocacy, is providing creative expression programs so that uh, victims and survivors can share their story, but in ways that they're comfortable. Not everybody is willing or feel comfortable standing in front of a microphone and talking about what's maybe the worst day of their life. This way they can still process their trauma through painting or drawing, music, poetry, and thus far it seems to to be working a lot of them seem to have come a long way and it's a real blessing to see them bloom and become more empowered mm. well, tell me why did you st decide to start the organization 
I decided to start the organization after I was raped in 2017. Um, I did not feel comfortable coming forward for several reasons. One, I felt like as a former police officer, I should have been able to fight my attacker off, even though, you know, it had been 17 years since I left the department. I still felt like I should have. And from some experiences being a detective, I wasn't sure, honestly, whether they would believe me. You know, I, I didn't think that it would happen to me, so I didn't know that they would believe that it happened to me. And I wanted to be able, after further processing it and, and starting to heal, I wanted to find a way to help others that may be in the same situation that I had been find a way to process it in a healthy way. Uh, and there weren't a whole lot of programs that I could find in Tennessee or even nationally where the primary focus was on trauma-informed therapeutic art. So I figured, why reinvent the wheel? Let's do something that isn't already widely done in the state. Now, you mentioned something. You said you worked for the police department. It had been some time since you left, but because you worked there, you didn't feel comfortable with coming to them about being assaulted and attacked. Talk to me more about that. When I was a detective in the adult sex abuse unit, um, the primary reason why I ended up leaving the department was I had was processing, or I'm sorry, staffing a case with the lieutenant over the unit. And during our conversation, he stopped me in mid-sentence and said, okay, hold on. She said no, but... She went into his bedroom, and she let him take off her blouse. So she said no, but she was really saying yes, so you just need to close the case. Mm. And for me, I was like, this is the head of the sex abuse unit, and that's his mentality. And at that point, after several months of thinking about it, I decided this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what law enforcement should be, in my opinion. Um, so I ended up leaving, and it was because of that experience that I didn't feel comfortable going to Metro and telling them what had happened to me. Now, I know you're talking, about, you're talking right now specifically about the head of the department, but was that a common, let's just say, motif throughout the rest of the unit you were working with? There were a couple of other people who were, for lack of a better term, insensitive. Um, they would sometimes make, <clears throat> excuse me, make comments saying that, well, she's a prostitute, so she couldn't have been raped. She's probably just mad that she didn't get paid. Or I actually heard at one point, well, you know, she lives in the project, she's black, that she's just trying to, to mm. maybe get money. Mm. And it's that, sadly, and and I'm not proud of this, I, I looked over that a little bit more, but it still really bothered me. Mm-hmm. And that, on top of what the lieutenant said, was, was just it's the last too straw. Much, too much yeah. for you. Now, now, Jill, you're a member of the Community Oversight Board. Tell me this. You're also a human being. How do you respond to what Greta's just shared with us? Yeah, I mean, when I've heard this story, it's always been pretty startling to me that um, a police department, 
director, um, you know, a director of a department um, would also be a person who is, um, you know, victimizing people all over again. Um, And so those are the types of things that um, as we start talking about misconduct that continue to come up. Um, uh, you know, throughout conversations and people that have even made complaints to us about how um, complainants have been handled or what they witnessed um, in regard to how uh, individuals who have either been sexually assaulted or who have been sexually harassed, how they're how they're how the police department conducts business with them. And so because of that, uh, Ms. McLean has come to our to our board meeting, has suggested um, some how we would how we could create policy together and moving forward with helping the police department create a policy that really is specific towards those who work with the police department who want to file complaints about sexual harassment, sexual assault, and also how they handle victims. You, you, you on the community oversight board, so you work with the police department. Do you feel like their process for Finding discipline for an officer who violates one of their policies, do you feel like their process is robust and it actually works? Uh, that's a loaded question. Does it work? Um, yeah, I don't know about that. I think that um, I think having independent and independent an independent agency help um, deal with discipline issues and misconduct. I think is is the way that most departments are leading, um, and and the reason for that is because if if a police department, uh, number one, they're policing themselves. Then secondly, the the communities in, in in not only in Nashville but across the state and across the nation, most people are vocalizing that they want independent investigations because of a lack of trust in holding officers accountable in these police departments. So what type of recommendations has the Community Oversight Board made? We make discipline. So what we do is we we used their grid for discipline, and we would make our recommendations, whether it be for suspension, whether it be for termination. It's based on the violations that were found. So the, a complainant may come in and say, hey, this officer was discourteous, but the more you dig into it, you realize there were violations of like their Fourth Amendment rights, adherence to policies. Um, um, you know, it could be a multiple things. And then we would make a recommendation um, for those particular policy violations to be handled. And we would use their discipline grid. And at that point, you, you know, you determine what the what the individual misconduct was and you put the particular punishment next to it and you send it to the chief of police because all we ever had the power to do was to make mm-hmm. the recommendation. Mm-hmm. And then he makes the final decision on whether or not um, to utilize the information that we've given him in an independent investigation to assist him in making um, the right discipline. Now, we got a tweet in at This Is Nashville from Angus Purdy. It says, quote, why does Metro Council insist on rubber stamping the ballooning budget of a department that refuses accountability? They should be ashamed, end quote. Jill, what's your reaction to that? I just think people are misinformed about what we do. I don't know what they mean by rubber stamping us. I mean, we've done, uh, I don't understand what it means by uh, (laughs) accountability. I think that anybody can look at us and um, we don't have anything to hide about accountability. So I just think that there's a lot of misleading and misinformed uh, uh, information floating around regarding the work that we do. You know, I've got a question. I'm going to come back to the board in a second. But Greta, 
you know, you were an officer for a long time. How did, you know, I'm sure you were aware of discipline being handed down to fellow officers who violated policy. What were your thoughts about that when it happened? Did you feel like it was just? Do you feel like it was robust when it, it did occur, or was it kind of light? I think it depended on who the officer was a lot of times. Um, from my experience as an officer and since in advocating for the, the victims, the MMPD victims, is that's that's still the case, you know, depending on who you are, who you know. And accountability, I think, is essential because without accountability, you start losing the community trust. Mm. And if the community doesn't trust the police department, then it's less likely that people are going to come forward and give information about, you know, a crime. And that puts all of us in danger mm. if we're allowing somebody to still be on, you know, a violent person to be on the street. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, departments should embrace oversight because if you're doing it right, yeah, you have fair. nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. You know, the only reason that you should fight it is if you're doing things that shouldn't be happening. Now, I, I, you know, Joe, the last time we had you in the show was about the state's law to change community oversight boards. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the future, you know, the, the board will be appointed by the mayor. We have a runoff coming up in a month to determine who's going to be the next leader of the city. What are the implications of how that's going to affect the board's ability to do this job, who the board is constructed of, and their ability to continue on this mission you were just telling us about? Yeah, I mean, what we proposed um, when we were reconstituting into this new um, board that we have to have um, based on the state law, um, becoming a community review board opposed to an investigatory body. Um, we, the mayor just appointed um, seven people from our, our current board, which is what we asked. What we had asked was that the mayor would only have one choice um, instead of picking all the people, but like have community organizations put people, um, you know, put their names out mm-hmm. um, because that would still give the community some insight. So I think right now we're good. I don't know what's going to happen in the subsequent years, um, but we would hope that wh- whoever becomes mayor would continue to honor communities' involvement in this oversight pro- process. What do you see as the future for the Community Oversight Board. Well, we're working on, you know, creating a review board um, aside from having litigation filed, which we I still think is something that we need to do, um, because no matter what, 134,000 people's votes are suppressed um, at this point. And so I still I will still be advocating for that, um, that we have to get a lawsuit filed and people should file a lawsuit regarding their right to vote, you know, um, and, and it being suppressed. But um, in order for us to move forward, we had to create something or we would have nothing come mm-hmm. October the 27th. So this, the council approved us moving forward with a review board. We're trying to work really closely with other agencies across the country that have review boards um, and um, just create the most robust one we can. You know, Greta, how can people's faith in police department, their ability to enact discipline upon themselves, but also to ensure employees and civilians have their rights respected and not violated by police officers? What can what can be done? What do you want to see be done? I want to see accountability and transparency. And I believe that that can be done with 
oversight and also with collaborative investigations. One of the things that I put forth to the uh, Community Oversight Board was a policy where if officers were involved in allegations of sexual assault or domestic violence, that a collaborative board or group would actually investigate it instead of it all being internal, similar to what they do with child sexual um, and normal abuse. Have somebody from the DA's office. Have an advocate from a domestic violence or sexual assault um, organization, as well as somebody from OPA and somebody either an investigator with the domestic violence unit or the sexual assault unit. Equal representation, but everybody's assuring that either it's not being too aggressive or too too partial hmm. or that it's not being swept under the rug. And again, I would think that most police departments would embrace that so that they could show we are doing things the right way and we want to make sure that the community feels safe. Whether Metro decide to adopt that, you know, I, I don't have an answer for that, yeah. but I hope that they would, if nothing else, as a show of good faith that they are willing to address this problem. Because I think it's really important for the people of Nashville to understand that when these lawsuits are being brought justifiably, but when they're being brought forth, the money that's being paid out isn't from the police department. It's from our pocketbooks. It's our tax dollars, tax dollars that could be going to hire more firefighters or EMTs, to upgrading our schools, to affordable housing, things that we genuinely need. But instead, it's having to go towards lawsuits because the department thus far appears to be unwilling to address the issue. I want to, Greta McLean is the founder of Silent No More, a nonprofit organization that assists survivors of sexual assault and is a former MNPD officer. And Jill Fitchard is the executive director of the Community Oversight Board. Thanks to you both for being here. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Burton. Our senior producer is Steve Farouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Jason Lee and Nina Cardona for the help on tech today. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram. Tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Kaleo Lake Alona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.